This week, a personal story in honour of the Hubble Space Telescope's 25th year in space. This astronaut, John Gonsfeld, told me that this mission to save the Hubble wouldn't be possible if it was not for John. And John was a hero to him. And the ins and outs of the love hormone, oxytocin. Oxytocin is one of the most interesting molecules in, in, in biology for all of its effects. Plus doing science on yourself. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 16th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Can you feel the love tonight? Or is it oxytocin? Oxytocin has become known as the love hormone as it seems to increase trust and social ability. But what oxytocin is actually doing in the brain has been harder to figure out. How does it cause these warm and cuddly behaviours? A team led by Robert Fremke of New York University decided to investigate how oxytocin alters the way mice look after their babies, called pups. They knew that oxytocin was involved in mothering behaviour, but could it make virgin mice behave in a maternal way? And if so, how is this change being caused in the brain? Before we found out about the effect of oxytocin on mice, I discovered that Robert Fremke had some slightly more personal love hormone news. You're staying in a hotel at the moment? Are you there for a conference? or? Yeah, I am. Actually, no, I'm getting married this weekend. Oh, congratulations. Oh, that's great. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It sort of synergizes with the whole oxytocin story in kind of a weird way. Yeah, so you're feeling quite oxytocin-y at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll get on to the more serious questions now, I guess. So what animal behavior were you hoping to investigate with oxytocin? Mice and, and rats, they're, they're born blind and deaf. Uh, rat and mouse pups kind of live underneath mom, staying warm and happy, uh, feeding and sleeping. And when the pup then falls off of the mother, that changes the vocalizations that they're making. The mother animal then uses the sound of that call to find the pup to pick it up and take it back to the nest. Maternal animals will do this highly reliably time and time again. But one important thing here is that this maternal behavior, this pup retrieval behavior, uh, virgin females, naive virgins, don't express it. So basically, in terms of the action of oxytocin, we were comparing uh, the responses to these pup distress calls in the naive virgin brain compared to, say, experienced mothers. And what did you actually find the result of oxytocin was on these mice? Pairing oxytocin with pup call presentation seemed to sort of transform the virgin brain into the more maternal-like state. Now the responses became very strong. In some cases, this happened extremely quickly on the matter of uh, seconds to minutes. I noticed it's never quite 100% of the mice that will retrieve the pups. Is that because some of the mice are just fundamentally bad parents? (laughs) That's a great question. So what happens in those animals we still don't quite understand? You know, why why doesn't even oxytocin combined with co-housing with an experienced, uh, with, a, with a good caretaker, why don't some of these animals also begin to retrieve? Has something gone wrong with uh, the, the oxytocin system? Maybe these animals just don't hear very well, and so they don't respond. To what extent were you able to pinpoint the role of oxytocin in the brain? Uh, so the way we sort of manipulated the oxytocin system was really one of three ways. Um, first, we just injected animals with oxytocin. Uh, And then we got a little bit more sophisticated and sort of focally applied um, exogenous oxytocin uh, directly to uh, part of the brain, the auditory cortex. And then finally, we also used um, optogenic approaches, 
where we can uh, sensitize the native, the endogenous oxytocin circuitry, the neurons that release oxytocin, to kind of release the, the uh, oxytocin uh, by the natural oxytocin system of, of the maternal brain. What did this tell you about oxytocin's mechanism in the brain? It looks like a very interesting, say, subclass of, of neuron in the auditory cortex uh, largely expressed the oxytocin receptor. Most of the cells expressed the receptor seem to be inhibitory interneurons. And so it really seems that oxytocin is important for modulating inhibitory processes uh, that control kind of information flow in local circuits. So those are the neurons and circuits you identified, and in the paper you say that they're mostly in the left auditory cortex. I know human speech processing has a similar asymmetry, that it's mostly on the left side as well. Do you think your research on mice could tell us anything about human speech? So are there shared mechanisms in terms of uh, sensitization for, for sounds like um, pop calls with some kind of important uh, behavioral or parental meaning? Um, could be. On the other hand, I think that if we begin to look uh, carefully, uh, we might see that oxytocin might act um, kind of in a, more, in, a, in a more broadband manner. Whenever I hear about uh, oxytocin, people are often singing its praises and talking about what amazing effect it has. And I often worry whether that means people are going to do it recreationally in some context. <laughs> you have to actually inhale quite a lot of it to have um, statistically significant effects um, on, on social behavior. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about um, oxytocin-based perfumes, or I think that uh, there are probably <laughs> other things <laughs> the, the easier to, 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 to work with. That was the lovely Robert Fremke, and you can find his paper and a News and Views article about the study at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up, the story of an astronomer couple and their contributions to the Hubble. And we'll also be looking at self-experimentation in science. Does anyone still test their theories on themselves? But before all that, the research highlights with Noah Baker. The sound of knuckles cracking really makes me shudder. But did you know that scientists have been arguing for years about what causes this everyday annoyance? Now, a group of researchers have used an MRI scanner to try to get to the bottom of this joint-popping mystery. One lucky participant had his fingers one by one attached to a cable, which was then gently yanked until the joint cracked. It seems that as the joint is stretched, the fluid it contains can no longer fill the space. A gas cavity forms and this causes the sound. Cracking piece of science. The paper is in PLOS One. The risk of a major earthquake in the San Francisco Bay Area is greater than was previously thought. By analysing satellite radar information, researchers have investigated the Hayward Fault, a fault line that runs through many densely populated areas. They found that the Hayward links up with another fault just to the south, called the Calaveras Fault, previously believed to be separate. Together, these faults could cause a more catastrophic earthquake than either of them on their own. For more, see Geophysical Research Letters. Our next destination is space, as we hear a very personal story about the Hubble Space Telescope. It's been called the People's Telescope, 
because it's brought the universe to people's living rooms. The Hubble Space Telescope launched 25 years ago this month. It's taken very memorable pictures of distant supernovae, galaxies and huge pillars of dust forming into stars. And this week, Nature reflects on Hubble's achievements over 25 years and the stories of many of the scientists and engineers involved in getting it up there. I want to share one of those stories with you. One very personal story about Hubble. Uh, okay, my name is Netta Bakol and I'm a professor of astrophysics. Netta is at Princeton University now, but in the 1980s she worked at Hubble HQ. Hubble hadn't launched at this point, but she and her husband, John Bakol, were busy planning. John was very strongly involved in making sure that the Hubble Space Telescope becomes a reality. In the 70s, there were big problems in getting it funded and there was big debates and um, many times on the verge of dying or being cancelled. Luckily, Hubble star began to rise again and by April 1990, it was ready for launch. Netta, John and their three children travelled to Cape Canaveral in Florida to watch. It was amazing. Uh, I'll never forget how... Unbelievable. Everybody was jumping on their feet and taking pictures and getting excited. Some people have tears in their eyes and so on. And then it was getting very close and then they stopped it. And I said there was some technical problem and they didn't launch that. <laughs> and they stopped it and said, well, we will try again tomorrow. I think we did make a side trip to Disneyland. This is Orly Bacall, their daughter. And in fact, I learned about this story from Ollie. She works as an editor at Nature. My mother can correct me. I think we did. I think we went there at some point after the first delay when we had to stay an extra few days. But I do remember very well what an important time it was for my family. We could see the passion in my father. You know, he would explain to us the importance of being able to address these fundamental questions about the universe, you know, the age of the universe, the size of the universe, ways that were beyond comprehension at the science of the time. There were even more problems after the launch, and Hubble needed urgent repair work. John Bacall and others campaigned for that too, and gradually Hubble began to send back the images that made it so famous. Here's John in a recording from 1997, recalling how popular those images made the project. Almost everybody I talk to knows something about Hubble, and before I tell them my connection, they have lots of questions. Every time I go to get my gas filled here at the gas station in Princeton, the man that pumps my gas has a new question for me, either about Hubble or, by, or about something related to astronomy. So I think Hubble has achieved one of its primary goals, which was to uh, give people something to talk about that we could be proud of. By 2005, Hubble was surpassing expectations, but it needed more repairs. It was almost abandoned again. John and others continued to campaign for it. But alongside this, John wasn't well. As Hubble was just reaching its projected 15 years in space, John died of a rare blood disorder. In 2008, I met the astronaut team that were going to go with the last servicing mission on the shuttle. 
the campaign had paid off. There would be one final repair mission to the Hubble. It would take with it some very special cargo. This astronaut, John Gonsfeld, told me that this mission to save the Hubble wouldn't be possible if it was not for John. And John was a hero to him. And then he told me, uh, I would like to take something personal of John up with me to the Hubble. So that was very moving to me. I remember just started crying when he told me that because that was a very moving and personal uh, request. So I thought about it, and, and he can only take something small, and I had John's wedding ring on a necklace on, 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 my, on, on my neck. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll send John's um, wedding ring up. And then I talked to Orly and the kids, and they said, oh, it's a great idea, but why don't you send both of your wedding rings up together? So that was the next time that my whole family gathered uh, to go to Cape Canaveral to watch the launch of the shuttle. We all stood close together outside watching watching it. I think I held my mother's hand and we thought about the rings and we thought about my father's involvement and we're so grateful to see, see this work continue. So our wedding rings went up to the Hubble circled the Earth 200 times with the shuttle mission. Uh, we're right next to the Hubble. I asked Netta, were the rings still up there? That's not allowed. You cannot leave anything up there in space. You know, every little screw, every little tiny thing is counted. Everything has to come back. And I remember some people asking me, well, aren't you worried if the rings don't come back, if they stay there or something? You know, I answered, of course I'm not worried about it. Let those wedding rings orbit in space. The final word on his beloved Hubble must go to John Bacall. Well, I think the biggest thing that Hubble has given us as a civilization is the biggest thing that, similar to the biggest thing that any parent can give to a child, namely a sense of self-esteem. We see as a, a, a humanity sees that we're able to do things which are wonderful. We're able to accomplish tasks which seem almost unbelievable in setting up uh, and repairing in orbit uh, an observatory of exquisite precision and uh, uh, great technological demands. And I think as a civilization, we can take enormous pride John Bacall, who died in 2005, and telling the story, Nessa and Orly Bacall. The audio segments of John Bacall are from the 1997 interview by Gail Knowles, John Bacall Bringing the Universe Home. They first appeared in Nautilus magazine, March the 6th, 2014. And there's so much more Hubble content online as we celebrate the telescope's 25th anniversary. There's a feature looking at how the telescope project came together, a comment piece on what's next for scientists gazing into other galaxies, and there are five lovely videos of space scientists talking about their favourite Hubble moments. Here's a trailer of what they say. Well, I would say it's really a, a sort of a discovery machine. It shows us the universe. It has given us the universe, if you like, like we've never seen it before. 
As an astronaut, I had a sense that I was contributing to something that was really worthwhile because of what it would provide for, for everyone here on planet Earth. You understand that this is something that you, you just have never, we've never seen before. Me and my team look at each other and we said, this is going to be on the cover of every single Hubble book. Some images just do that. They, they connect you with the universe in ways that, you know, uh, are totally unexpected. That is one of the highlight moments. And if that's whet your appetite, you can find the full videos on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash naturevideochannel, and they'll be released between now and the 24th of April, Hubble's actual launch date back in 1990. Find all nature's Hubble coverage in one easy place, nature.com slash Hubble 25. Would you experiment on yourself? The Royal Society in London had a meeting last week discussing self-experimenters of the past and self-experimentation of the future. Noah Baker headed down to the event to catch up with a few of the speakers. In 1984, Australian researcher Barry Marshall swallowed a petri dish full of a bacterium called Heliobacter pylori. He was testing a theory that the bacterium caused peptic ulcers. Sure enough, mere days later, he developed an ulcer. Perhaps not very good for him, but very good for his career. He ended up winning a Nobel Prize. Marshall wasn't the first person to use himself as a guinea pig, and he probably won't be the last. But what leads scientists to take that risk, to do science on themselves? And should they be doing it? I've come to the Royal Society to meet three experts who are giving a talk this evening on the very subject. First up, I think I'll just do an introduction. Could you guys introduce yourself for me? My name is Duncan Wilson, and I'm a historian of science and medicine at the University of Manchester. I'm Gail Goldberg. Um, I work at the Medical Research Council's Human Nutrition Research Unit in Cambridge. And I'm Holger Mehl, and I'm Professor of History of Medicine and Medical Ethics at Durham University. Why do scientists, or have scientists, experimented on themselves in the past? In the early 20th century, you didn't have to apply for a licence to experiment on yourself. If you were looking to get some blood from volunteers or some tissue for tissue culture, you didn't have to walk to the nearest hospital, you just had to get out your scalpel and take some material from yourself. You didn't have to go about recruiting volunteers, informing them about risks or drawbacks. There was an element of pragmatism, a large element of pragmatism. So what kind of experiments are we talking here? I mean, to what extent um, do scientists experiment on themselves and have they done in the past? There is, of course, uh, quite a range of experiments. And uh, you mentioned swallowing bacteria. Uh, in the elucidation of infectious diseases, there have been quite a lot of uh, self-experimenters, uh, for example, in the, in the investigation of yellow fever. Some, some of these experiments have been highly risky, and uh, some of the experimenters have actually died. Um, then there are, of course, experiments with drugs, with new drugs, Maybe a third area is in, in surgery. Art catheter is a, the art catheter is an example uh, that was first tried out in the self-experiments in the 1920s. What else do we owe to self-experimenters in terms of our understanding of science today? Gail, is there anything in nutrition? Yes, there are a number of examples, and they still stand today in terms of what we know about mineral metabolism and interactions between calcium and iron, for example. 
There were also studies conducted during, before and during and shortly after the Second World War to do with rationing and to do with um, wheat uh, extraction rates of flour that was used to make bread. And so it strikes me that there's quite a lot that, that we sort of owe to self-experimenters and perhaps these, these experiments are things which would have been more difficult to do in any other way at the time um, using anything other than self-experimentation. Should we still be doing it then? You know, is there, is there a reason that we could, should be suggesting to scientists they continue to use self-experimentation as, a, as an avenue through which they should do science? Um, I think it's less likely that we would do, um, whether that means we should or we shouldn't. But I think that the fact is that ideas of what constitutes ethical, what's ethically acceptable have changed, and ideas about what constitutes research have changed. So whether we can argue it should be done, I think the fact is that far less of it will be done for those reasons. Your body is your body. Surely should you not be allowed to do whatever kind of work on it that you want? I mean, what, what, what role does an institution have to stop you doing that from an ethical standpoint? Well, if you're using the institution's facilities, um, it depends on who's funding you. And also, while it may look like someone's exercising free choice, we always have to look at perhaps certain pressures they may be under. And the, the doctor who died in the yellow fever experiments was a junior doctor. So it's not a simple case of it's my body and I can do what I like with it. I think on the one hand, these, these experiments in the past are sort of heroic and they make a point. On the other hand, they, they wouldn't sort of stand the test nowadays uh, where you need controlled trials, where you need statistics, uh, where you need randomized groups. <laughs> You know, that, that, is, that is the issue, really, yeah. that, that has also contributed, I think, to the decline of self-experiments nowadays. Yeah, the, whole, the whole issue, as you say, of, of sort of experimental design and analysis of data has also moved on enormously in the past, yeah. in the past century. But ethical review and bioethics more generally emerged for historically specific reasons. And those were that there was an exposure in the 1960s and 1970s of highly questionable research that was done on vulnerable populations, which contributed to a massive decline in public and political trust in medicine. And without the public and political trust, it's very hard to do any research. And bioethics acts to safeguard public and political trust. So far from being an impediment to research, I think we should look at it more as something that facilitates research in a highly charged and changed climate. That was Duncan Wilson, Gail Goldberg and Holger Mailer. You can hear a recording of the event by searching royalsociety.org for Science on Myself. News time now, and on the line from Washington, D.C., it's Laura Morello. Now, firstly, a new study in PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academies of Science, suggests some cautiously good news for, uh, for women being hired in science. Right. Researchers put together some hypothetical CVs for hypothetical job candidates for tenure-track positions in biology, psychology, economics, and engineering. And then they asked researchers at 371 U.S. universities, um, about 900 researchers in total, to look at those CVs and basically tell them which person they would want to hire. Um, And the interesting thing is that the researchers preferred the female job candidates by a whopping margin, um, two to one. Does the study offer any uh, reason why that might have been the case? They don't uh, speculate on um, 
why that might be the case, but they did um, very carefully um, try to control for factors that might throw off the results. They um, did tests without anything to indicate sex other than name, and then they added in variables like marital status or parental status to see whether um, any kind of underlying assumptions about the choices you make based on um, your gender would affect hiring. And it turns out that those factors did not seem to affect hiring. Now, it seems um, a good news story. Is that really the case? It is. I mean, first of all, we should put a big disclaimer on this study. It's really interesting, but they're looking at hypothetical people applying for hypothetical jobs. It's not quite real world, but it is encouraging. Um, the other thing I would say is that when you know we got comment on this study from researchers who did not you know, conduct the research, um, they said that you have to really look at how gender bias might affect someone's career over its full span, not just at the point of hiring for tenure track jobs, because if you've made it that far, you've successfully gotten an undergrad degree, you've gotten a doctorate, you probably have survived a postdoc or two or even three, and then you're applying for jobs. So it's pretty far down the road. That comment puts me in mind of another study that was that was published about a year ago where scientists did a very similar thing. Researchers sent CVs that were only different in the gender of the name to um, lab heads to see if these people could get placements. Right. So what researchers did, this wasn't specific to science, but they wrote an email message that claimed to be from a prospective doctoral student. They sent these messages to faculty in all different types of fields at 259 top U.S. universities, um, and then what the message said was that the hypothetical doctoral applicant was interested in the professor's work and wanted to talk to that professor for 10 minutes to discuss research opportunities. Uh, some people got an email that claimed to be from Brad Anderson, which is a name that uh, people would assume would be a, a white male. Some people got a white female, uh, an African-American male or female a Hispanic male or female, an Asian male or female. And the responses really vary depending on um, the presumed background of the person emailing. Uh, there was a 25 percentage point gap between the response to the presumed white man, Brad Anderson, and any of the women or minority candidates. Wow. So, I mean, it's a very strikingly opposite result, that. But as you were saying, maybe maybe earlier down the um, the scientific career track, things are very different. Well, I mean, one factor that I think might play into this, um, it's just a suspicion, is that in the United States there are strong federal laws against discrimination in hiring, and universities place a lot of effort into training their employees not to run afoul of these laws. So there's emphasis on non-discrimination in hiring. Um, and I don't know whether you know that same emphasis is in play, for example, um, evaluating potential graduate students. As you said earlier, these studies are hypothetical. These are not real people. Does the real world <laughs> look like this? So that's an interesting question. Um, you know, it is a fact that U.S. universities employ more male scientists than female scientists. The men are paid more. There are some other encouraging signs. Um, a study that came out in February has found that um, in the United States, women and men that earn bachelor's degrees in science go on to receive doctoral degrees at about the same rate. But then there are studies like another one last year that found that um, principal investigators in bio biology labs are far more likely to employ men than women. Um, and the, uh, the gap is highest in elite labs. And it's 
in those elite labs, the largest gap is seen in um, labs run by male Nobel Prize winners. Um, but uh, elite female professors tend to employ a much higher percentage of female postdocs and grad students in their labs. Now, from the rarefied uh, tenure track of science to the rarefied reaches of the far solar system, and once again to Ceres. So Ceres is a dwarf planet. It's also technically an asteroid. It's the largest object in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Um, And so the interesting thing is the Dawn spacecraft um, kind of got sucked into Ceres orbit early last month. It's still getting closer to the planet, and it sent back the first really good pictures of Ceres' surface. And we heard in a story from Alexandra Witsey, who often writes about space for us, that there are these bright spots on Ceres that were confusing people. Right. They're mysterious. They just look like bright gleams. Some preliminary data came out last month that suggested that those bright spots might actually be icy plumes shooting up from Ceres' surface, which is very cool. Um, And now the newest data has kind of deepened the mystery about these spots because um, the spacecraft is close enough that it was able to analyze the surface using an infrared camera. And some of those spots showed up looking darker than their surroundings, which means that they're cooler than their surroundings, which supports the idea that those bright spots are made of some kind of ice. But other bright spots on Ceres didn't show up in the infrared camera at all, and scientists are trying to figure out whether that means they didn't get a good look with the camera or whether those bright spots are caused by something other than ice. What else could it possibly be if it isn't ice? It could be some other kind of um, active geological feature, you know, anything that reflects. Um, And something that reflects doesn't necessarily have to be cold. Have the aliens lit some fires? (laughs) We will find out. (laughs) Dawn is getting much closer to Ceres, um, took another set of pictures on April 10th, and those haven't been released yet. So they may help clear up the mystery. Um, And the spacecraft is starting its full science program on April 23rd. So it's really going to get down to business then, and we might get some answers. All right. Well, plenty uh, this week in the Hubble special to entertain space nerds, but watch this space for more on series and my prediction about aliens, which is almost certainly completely false. Uh, thank you, Lauren. Um, Nature.com slash news has some beautiful pictures of series and that article on the PNAS study and women getting tenure. So go there to read those stories and more. That's all from us this week. Next time, new research gives us the latest buzz on bees and pesticides. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.